kid. Hey, it's Sammy here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I would like to ask for your help. Tell me what questions you would like answered. If you could also take a moment to review the show. The algorithms are taking into account how many ratings and reviews I get. The more reviews, the more people they restore the podcast with. You say, are you ready? Yes, sir. Let's play ball. So nowadays, people do not have access to gyms, but they want to focus on increasing their speed. You should have posted about three steps in order to do that. The first step is to increase your strength to body weight ratio, like doing deadlifts and squats and stuff like that. Can you share with us why that is not enough? And what are the other steps that people can do? Well, I think, um, especially now, there's there's a lot of people who have broken this down. And, and the way I conceptually approach things is I always use the phrase that relative strength or absolute strength means nothing without the ability to express it through movement. And so when you get to terms like uh, speed strength and those types of things, the most common misfire that we have is that most training blocks, yes, will have a transfer period when it relates to skill and appropriating strength to field products. But the point we're missing and we don't really get into depth with, and I think a lot of it has to do with the terms and the ideas that traditionally we don't want to or we don't like to, for some reason, elaborate with athletes what we're trying to accomplish in more robust terminology. We don't try to really in-depthly explain something because we think an athlete won't understand it if we start to use big words or if we start to use other things. But as a teacher, we should be able to adequately teach them what those words mean because if they're factual words, if they're what's happening within movement, if they were to go and reference it at Google, they would get one definition. And the problem is, is we start making up a lot of these fluff terminologies that we go on Google and everything under the sun pops up and we get 10,000 results. And so I believe that's first. When we're building strength and we're creating those blocks, how effectively are we teaching our athlete as a learner, not just movement-based? Because if we help them learn, they can become more spatially aware, they can become more neurologically aware, and we're also stimulating pathways within the brain that allow us to think creatively. And that's all sports is. It's a creative, chaotic simulation of events that we have to put together in some sort of fashion. And if all we know how to is be in a room with a bunch of apparatuses that we pick up and down, we're not being able to solve problems with the tools that those apparatuses have given us, which are strength, power, you know, those types of things. So step two in that process is about orientation. So we know that speed and absolute strength in those things and creating rate of force production and force production in a vertical fashion. Science tells us that vertical force and horizontal force merge together when we're talking about speed. That merging and that combination of things comes through understanding how to put our systems in a direction that is going to give us an idea of where things go. For me, I break that down into triangles. So for me, we would have two two triangles, the lower half and the upper half. The upper half would consist of the torso, 
um, the femur, and then the imaginary line would be at the shoulder, clavicle, all the way down to the kneecap. Now, the reason we use triangles is because what we want to see is the expression of space. So if the hips in our upper triangle and the pelvis is equally between, almost at the same angle of the spine in relation to the femur, then we're going to have an ability to create better horizontal force because we're going to create more of a thrusting motion. Science already tells us that a posterior to anterior thrust activates the glutes better and most appropriately when it comes to glute engagement, hip contraction, pelvic movement, those things. Now, teaching athletes how to see and feel if we're in these triangles that I like to call them is a little simpler sometimes than just telling them to hinge. Because a lot of athletes that, especially younger ones, and you're talking about all these hinge movements within the weight room, okay, they're taught hinge, hinge, hinge. And then how do we express that hinge horizontally? You can do barbell thrusts, you can do hip thrusts, you can do all those things, but you're still in a closed chain exercise and you're still not appropriately understanding how do I get out of that movement when I'm standing up, when I'm in locomotion and those things. And so joint orientation and positional orientation is so important in step two when we go towards, okay, I know I can create vertical force, but how do I appropriately teach an athlete to position their body in a manner that allows them to express it horizontally? Because all that is, is, is changing angles of joints, changing positions of joints. And so our lower half triangle, we want to think of heel, butt is the imaginary line. And then we'd go femur and then our shin, our tibia. That creates that lower half triangle. And what we're looking for as the lower half triangle expresses itself. And as we move forward, that triangle stays in the same angle on both the, the tibia and the femur. And as it rolls forward, as we move through our foot and we explode through the transverse arch and move off that part of our body, we see how a shin angle is going to direct where we go. We create these force vectors with these triangles and it helps us understand, especially through video analysis, where the athlete is going to go and what they aren't going to access. Because if we don't get that thrust of the pelvis and the pelvis doesn't go to hip extension, it's not always because they don't possess it, because if you put them in a hip thrust, they're going to be able to move a lot of weight and show that they're explosive. But are we accessing that? Are we teaching them to access those things when they're standing up? And positionally and joint orientation is going to be a, a key indicator of how we do that. Now, step three for me would be if I teach an athlete positionally angles, triangles, how the hips are supposed to express themselves and those things. After I, we create that orientation, then we've got to talk about where we leave the ground from. We've got to talk about, for me specifically, how to create hip-driven athletes. And for me, the biggest flaw I see is that we don't talk enough about locking the tibia, the lower leg, we talk about lower leg stiffness, but we don't talk about locking the tibia to the femur. And so what I mean by that is when we talk about tensioning, when we talk about fascia and we talk about 
the stretch shortening cycle with the calf and and we begin to get deeper into whether you talk about slings or meridians or those types of concepts, one of the things we can understand is that the body is one system placed in a rope, okay? And there's a, a network of pulleys. For me to create extra tension in one place, another place has to slacken. And I don't like using that word much because there's still tension there. It's just less than it was before. But with lower leg stiffness, we can create a motion to where the tibia locks to the femur. And that for me is step three, as far as how are we expressing power? How are we transferring power? Because an easy example of that is if you stand up right now and you just gently pick your knee up without stiffening your foot, you just let your foot kind of relax and then move your shin, kind of like swing your shin. It can move pretty independently because the knee is a hinge joint and you really feel nothing at the hip. Now, if we tension the foot, and for me, I don't really talk about dorsiflexion. Um, I talk about the transverse arch, so in between the great toe and the fifth uh, metatarsophalangeal joint, engaging the three arches of the foot. We push the arch down and get flexion of the toes up. And so it gives us a little more stability. But if we pick the leg up by doing that, and you cannot lose tension when you're flexing your toes and driving the arch down, now what happens is that the tibia locks to the femur for, for lack of a better sense, lack of a better words. And we have understanding that the femur is attached to the hip. And now when you try to swing your shin, your first, motion, your first point of movement is going to be at the hip joint when we're tensioned. And a lot of people will talk about knee drive and thigh block and all these other things. But athletes will literally, literally pull the knee up as opposed to understanding that if the hip works appropriately and we sequence through the foot appropriately, starting through stiffness and all those things, we will be hip driven and the knee will get to the height it gets to based off of how hard and how well the hips are working. And that's for me where the lack of expression of strength comes from because we don't relate these things for athletes. And so we're not getting the translation of movement understanding and how we can access those things. Because if we're in a hip thrust position and our feet are on the ground, you're naturally at points going to tense up your foot. You're going to activate at some point, some of the muscular chain in your foot to be able to drive and thrust your hips up. But do we talk about these things when we're moving, when we're sprinting? No, we talk about linear arm swings. We talk about knee drive. But if I pull my knee up, that's you're not going to feel your hip activate. You're not going to get the most out of it. You know, there's plenty of science, like I said, that that's already said that posterior to anterior thrust activates the glutes really, really well and maximally. But how do we transition that to standing? And one of the ways we do that is by understanding how to leverage tension within the body. And that starts with the foot. That was, that was deep. <laughs> so you recently had amazing results inside the softball community, but recently I got a uh, chance to view your video movement analysis of one of the best moving pitchers in MLB today. 
Uh, you compare the pitcher to my pitching movement, considering we are both the same height, about the same height, and about both the same weight. But he throws like just just like twenty miles harder than me. <laughs> Not nothing much. So what are you? What is he doing that is so elite? And how much of that is natural talent? And how much of it can be taught? Okay, so for me, um, I. Genetics is always going to play a role. I'm not going to understate that. But at the same time, there are so many things that an athlete does that's not necessarily genetic. It's just awareness level. And we appropriate that to athleticism. So like just the comment that you said, you know, what are the difference? Can we teach that? There is so much we can teach. I have yet to be in a position where I see a movement that's happening And I can't teach it to another kid because there are some absolute things that happen and we can teach there. And the biggest lesson that we have to learn as athletes, because I'm one of these, I'm one of these people. I was one of these athletes. There's going to be three, one to three percent of people in this world, not just in athletics, that do everything really well when they need to, regardless of what happened moments before. And so that's why you see successful pitchers have unique windups. You, you see successful movers have unique starts, have these unique characteristics that we would call style. But none of that matters because they get back to the same positions that we know and that science tells us assist with top level acceleration and top level movement and explosiveness regardless. And they don't have to think about it. Now, the thing we have to understand as athletes is if you know that you're not that person, are you willing to take the time and find the resources, find the people that are going to be able to teach you those positions and understand that it's going to take a lot more mentally and neurologically. So redundancy there. It's going to take a lot more brain work for you to consistently get into those positions. Because the way I measure things consistently with athletes is, look, I understand you're not going to do this well. Our first several our f- several sessions that we start with are not about you doing things well. You're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably. But you need to feel what it's like once to move like a li- an elite mover would move. And understand that it took nothing but maybe a centimeter difference in joint angle, a centimeter difference in foot position, a centimeter difference in arm position, and you accessed 90 to 100% of what you're capable of. You accessed all that strength you built in the weight room. But the problem is you did it once. And so those several sessions are about building consistency. Can I do step one and feel like I got a lot of juice out of it? Nine out of 10 times if I'm doing 10 reps. I don't care that you started at one out of 10. Now we have a goal. Your goal is not 10 reps. Your goal is the next time I do it, am I going to get to 20%? Am I going to get to 30%? And we don't take those wins into account and we don't understand how to really set goals when it comes to movement efficiency. So is it teachable? It is matter of factly, in my belief, teachable to be an elite mover. Now, the things that he may do differently, he may not even be able to explain it to you. And that's okay. That's okay. That's his lot in life. Who cares? But if I can teach you to do it, if you can understand why it's happening, 
then it provides you with the ability. And also it tells you who you are. There is no coach, no trainer that will ever develop you enough to be responsible for what you made of yourself. All we will ever provide is the tools and resources for you to build the, the name that you want. You will always be the ultimate, the ultimate truth to, to who you want to be. Because there's plenty of times in life, um, and, and you'll, re you'll recognize this as you're in high school. You've gone through some things that your friend is going through, and you give them the exact advice that got you through it. And it, it, it's the best advice in the world, 100%. But they still don't listen. Even though they know you went through the exact same situation, they still don't listen because people have to learn on their own. And that's the same thing with athletics and understanding positions and doing those things. Now, the biggest thing we see in that analysis that, that he's doing is what we talked about, the foot. And to clarify, when we're talking about those steps, I wouldn't even group those as one, two, and three as far as importance. I would group those as all three things need to be done. There is not one more important than the other. They can all be done at the same time, period. It's just a matter of, are you going to take the time to do it? Are you going to set a culture that when athletes enter your space, that is what is expected of them as a learner, and that is the level of teaching you're going to provide? I'm in a unique space, and I don't see kids two to three times a week. I see my athletes four, two to four times a month. So I've had to learn how to be impactful in two hours out of their month, in four hours out of their month to create results and to be able to teach them things that they apply universally. Because in, in, in all honesty, in all truth, if I haven't taught them well, they get nothing from me because they don't change how they practice. They don't change how they move. They don't change how they walk. They don't change how they breathe. But I have to be able to teach those things to them so that they want it all the time. And that's why certain athletes, unfortunately, don't see me more than a couple of times because they don't like failure. And they're not really, for lack of a better word, like people would say, that there's not a dog in them. They haven't found it yet. They like a sport. They don't love it. They don't realize the sport's not going to love them back all the time, and especially when they're in an environment with me. And so what we get to is the differences in what his foot will do when it comes off the rubber. Okay. And like I said, this may be innately what he does, or he may actually be able to explain it to you. So how he rolls from inversion to eversion, and a lot of people will, you know, the joint by joint approach or other things like that. When I'm sequencing, if I lack mobility or stability at one joint, I'm going to try to find it somewhere else. And the biggest differences for both for, for you and him start at that position. Your foot does not have the ability to roll through its, uh, its TCN. So TCN is just kind of a small ball and socket joint in your foot. It's what allows eversion and inversion. When he rolls through that motion and he goes from forced toe all the way to big toe and all those things, that mobility allows his knee to stay in a position and sequence better so that he gets better hamstring engagement. And so when he, you know, gets into his, you know, the, the term, you know, I see used a lot is uh, ride the slide. When he gets into that load for his glutes he's accessing his glutes at a much higher clip because of sequencing. 
if the ankle, the talus, and, and, and because it goes from there, the ball the inversion to eversion, TCN goes to talus. If the talus is, and the ankle are operating well, then we're talking about that stiffness. He has stiffness when he goes into, when he goes into from eversion to inversion. That stiffness is able to transmit energy better because instead of being, and you want to think of it like this, energy transfer is like two basketballs. If I have a basketball that's inflated and one that's deflated and I throw them both into the ground as hard as I can, and this is a, quite a real question for you, which, which ball bounces higher? The one inflated. Exactly. And so we want to think of our feet like that. I've, that stiffness and that denseness comes from air occupying the space within the ball. If air doesn't completely occupy the space within the ball, the, the kinetic energy has to fill the ball up, then finish. And that's kind of like a, it's it's a rough analogy, but it's easy to to explain about why we're not getting energy in certain places. If the joint doesn't have proper mobility, stability, those things to transfer energy, energy has to stop at the joint real quick, and then whatever's left over continues up the stream. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So what happens for you is it doesn't matter that you may both generate the same total summation of forces initially. You lose a lot more of it because your foot lacks the mobility of inversion and eversion. It's the same reason when, when, when you jump, your, ankle, your inside ankle bone collapses uh, pretty deeply when you land. It's that same thing. So as we sequence through that motion, you get more movement and rotation at the knee. Now, the knee is not a ball and socket joint. And while there will be micro rotations in the knee, the torsion that you're getting is not a transmission of energy. It's not going to shoot it straight up your femur and, and the muscles around your femur. Because he gets the mobility from his foot and then it stiffens at the end, his knee acts as just the hinge, just the hinge. And so energy gets transferred better. And so what that means muscle skeletal wise is that his hamstrings, his calf and hamstring are going to co-contract and communicate better. We know that our hamstrings are also muscles that provide hip extension. So they're signaling to the glutes to fire. The hamstrings signal to the glutes to help and assist. Hey, energy's coming up. Now you guys are going to have to do some work here. And as that rotation is happening for you, as you're both starting to leave the rubber, a lot of the energy that dissipates for you is getting shot straight through his glutes. And that's one of the things when people talk about is like, well, that guy's got really developed glutes. And you'll see like Mike Mayock used to literally write in his draft analysis. It's like, oh, this, this athlete's got a bubble butt. He would literally say that in his draft profile analysis as an equation of, okay, that's where he's getting some of his explosiveness from. He's a well-built guy. Look at his butt. Those things. That's, that's not an equation of <laughs> contractile effort all the time. You can have larger glutes than somebody and have larger fibers and more fibers or whatever, but if you're still only accessing 30% of your max voluntary contraction ability, then it's still 30%. And if he's getting 90% out of a lesser max voluntary contraction ability, he's still whooping you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that foundation is the biggest thing that I would have to say changes you and him. And the reason 
I wouldn't get further than that is the same reason I tell a lot of the, the pitchers I work with with softball. I don't really know exactly how your stride leg is going to land, how your arm is going to gather itself, how your torso is really going to separate if we don't fix what's happening at your foot. I don't even know how you express you, especially if, if we put EMG on you and it's correct, you're only getting 30% or 40%. You could be an entirely different thrower of the baseball with an extra 40% of what you can accomplish. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so for me, at, at points, it gets pretty pointless once we start going further and further, like to step six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, because those are always going to be directly related to step one. And if step one is really bad and we see dysfunction in step one and we can make step one better, we have to do that first. And that's a problem for a lot of athletes. It's a problem even when I've worked with with, with guys in the NFL, guys in uh, you know uh, European soccer and then the majors here, those things, even at elite levels, I, I have yet to meet an athlete that truly gets a hundred percent or even close to a hundred percent of what their body's capable of. And when you show them that, and then they express it in movement, there's this, we get the same thing all the time, especially from our, our European our Euro soccer guys who are already you know playing in the States because they still want to play soccer, but they may not be able to play at that high level anymore that they played in when they were, you know, in their, in their, teens and up to their you know early 30s and now they're in their middle age middle 30s late 30s sometimes early 40s and like whoa wait a second i got a lot more left in me i can, I can still play but they did it once and it goes back to consistency and that's the hard part because it's a lot of work to get that once it's a lot of thinking but it's the same thing you've done everywhere else in your life you don't think about putting food in your mouth anymore. It just goes there. But if your parents would tell you how annoying and how long it took for you to do that, that's the same feeling you get sometimes when we're trying to be taught something and we get so overwhelmed and frustrated because we think it's so stupid because it's a small detail. And we're just like, ah, nah, I'll just continue to work on the other things. I'll continue to pump it in the weight room and, you know, Maybe one day, you know, it'll just happen where my, my, my 500 pound squat will just start transferring better to my pitching motion. My, my uh, 600 pound barbell hip thrust will start transferring better to my motion. It's not, it's not going to happen that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So where can people find out more about you and your resources? Um, so for me, I have a website, footdoctorisaya.com. Um, within that website, um, it'll list uh, my in-person services, my remote training services, and then clinics that I give um, or, or how to host a clinic. I post a lot of my stuff on social media, not necessarily Twitter. I'm still really, really new at Twitter. So Instagram.com uh, slash foot doctor underscore Isaiah is a place you can follow me. Um, the same uh, tag is on Twitter, foot doctor. Um, all spelled out completely, underscore Isaiah. And just to clarify, I am not a podiatrist. I, I'm not a foot doctor. When we originally started um, this company and this group, we just did traditional speed and agility training. And so it was kind of like a, like a flash word. Um, and really and truly, um, our principal, Seth, um, who's the foot doctor, uh, foot doctor sports is the, is the name, really started the trend of all these 
stance doctor, baseball doctor, softball doctor, this and this doctor, all those things that you kind of see now. You know, he'd been doing that for almost 10, 12 years now. And he's he works with mostly NFL guys and, and same thing, European soccer and those things. So those are places you can find me, footdoctorisaya.com, Instagram, Twitter, footdoctor underscore Isaiah, and then Facebook as well at Isaya. Okay, so last question here. You don't have to think as much. Your all-time favorite sports movie. All-time favorite sports movie? Yeah, any sport. Any sport? Whew. Huh, that's a good one. I guess more emotionally invested, uh, remember the Titans. And not necessarily because I think it's my favorite sports movie, but we got to see it in a private viewing when I was playing uh, peewee football. And so the memory of being with all of my teammates and feeling so cool about watching a movie just us um, before one of our playoff games, uh, it's just a memory I have forever. And, and, and I mean, the movie's great. And I'm not saying it's not. Denzel's really good in it. Uh, and so are the other actors in that movie. But it, it was a great movie at the time. And it really felt really real and, and meant something to me. Thank you so much for playing ball. Thank you, boss. I appreciate it. And don't forget to play ball, kid.